If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to take them out and turn in the New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew, the fourth chapter. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. And when you've found Matthew chapter 4, I'm going to ask you to stand so that we might hear read together the word of the living God. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 25, this is the word of the Lord. And great crowds followed Jesus from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, how we love your word and how we love you for being a God who speaks to us and communicates with us and reveals who you are and and who we should be and how we should live our lives. Thank you for that, Lord. We pray now, Spirit of God, that you would attend the, the preaching of your word now, Lord. As we prayed, open our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our hearts to understand your truth for our lives. We submit ourselves now to you and to the authority of your word, seeking your power to live it out in this place. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Many scholars believe that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven terms used synonymously, but that's the main theme of the Gospel of Matthew. One commentator, R.T. France, says that the kingdom of heaven functions virtually as a slogan for the whole scope of the ministry of Jesus in Matthew. It's a slogan, kingdom of God, kingdom of God. Come on, say it. Kingdom of God, kingdom of God. That's it. That's Matthew. That's what he presents to us in his gospel. And we certainly saw that the last time we were together in Matthew. We watched as Matthew told the story of that moment in time where for a brief moment, Jesus gave us a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven as it will be someday. A day where every curse of every sin is reversed. We watched As Jesus went throughout all of Galilee preaching the good news of the kingdom of heaven. And we were filled with hope. Because we know that one day the kingdom of God will be all pervasive. It will reign here on earth. We watched as Jesus went about teaching the truth of God. And we were filled with hope. Because we know that one day the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth as waters cover the sea. We watched as Jesus healed every kind of disease and affliction. And we were filled with hope. Because we know that one day there will be perfect, unblemished life in the kingdom of God. Now, do those things give you hope? Do they give you hope? We need hope in this world, don't we? Where according to an analysis by the Washington Post, recorded in the BBC... There have been more deaths in U.S. school shootings 
so far in 2018 than there have been deaths in the U.S. military. And amazing. So we long for the curse to be reversed. In a world where the blame for massacres such as these, it's placed on too many entrances and too many exits of a building. Instead of acknowledging the fact that we as a culture have eliminated God and the way He has commanded us to live our lives, we ignore it. And then we blame God when a godless culture works itself out to its logical conclusion. We long for the curse to be reversed. We long for the kingdom of God to come in its fullness. So what stands before us this morning is this most famous portion of all of Scripture, the monumental Sermon on the Mount. And again, many scholars see the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven as the controlling theme and the principal theological concept in the sermon. So between this glimpse of the kingdom that Jesus gave us that we saw last time and between his teaching about what this kingdom is like lie these transitional verses that Matthew records for us that we're going to look at this morning. And in these verses, Matthew gives us a glimpse of what every kingdom needs. Every kingdom needs a king, right? And so Matthew gives us that this morning. Since we have a king, and we do, who rules, then we must submit our lives to him. And that's what we're going to talk about for the remainder of this morning. Submitting our lives to Christ, our king. The kind of king that he is emerges from these verses. And we're going to look at those this morning. First, we see that Jesus is a king who stirs things up. Jesus is a king who sees. Jesus is a king who sits. And Jesus is a king who speaks. Get the S's? Alliteration. That doesn't always happen. A king who stirs, who sees, who sits, and who speaks. Let's look at each facet of his kingship. First, he stirs. Look in verse 25 of chapter 4. It says that great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So this great crowd of people, they're they're following Jesus from all these varied and vast geographic locations. And the following that is happening here is a literal one. It's not a figurative following. It's not like, oh, I follow the paleo diet, or I follow the Atkins diet, or I follow the Whole30 diet. You can follow those in your kitchen, right? These crowds were literally following Jesus. They went where he went. So think about it for a moment. What had to happen in the lives of these people in order for them to follow Jesus? Their lives had to be drastically altered, shaken up stirred. Did they have to call into work and say, hey, I'm not coming in to work today or tomorrow or the next day because I'm following Jesus? Was there a mom in a crowd who, who left a note, say, you're on your own for dinner tonight and breakfast tomorrow and dinner and the next day and the next day because I'm following Jesus? I don't know if any of that happened. <laughs> Probably didn't. But something I know had to change in order for these people to follow Jesus. He stirred up their lives. He disturbed 
their lives that were so settled. He upset what was in place. In order to follow Jesus, something had to be left behind. Stirring in some form is what Jesus always does in people. The fact that Jesus stirred up people was one of the chief complaints of the chief priests. After Pilate said to them, look, I've examined Jesus. I find no fault with him. And they began to whine. And they said, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, even to this place. Jesus stirs up people. They didn't like it. When Jesus entered Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday, Matthew tells us the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? The city was shaken. It was set in motion. This is the effect that King Jesus has on people. He stirs things up here at the very beginning of his ministry all the way through to its completion. And so you have to ask yourself, and I have to ask myself, how is my life stirred up Because I submit my life to Jesus as my king. Now your life might be stirred up or upset or disturbed. It might be fraught with drama, drama of your own making. That doesn't count, right? For you dramatic people, that doesn't count. I'm talking about our lives being stirred up or upset or disturbed because Jesus is our king and we submit our lives to him. You know what? Jesus might stir up your schedule. And we don't like that, do we? Because our time is our own, right? It belongs to us. Jesus might stir up your schedule. Will you submit to him? Jesus might stir you up vocationally. Different plan for you. Will you submit? Jesus might stir up your finances, right? Will you submit? Jesus might stir up your relationships. Will you submit? I can't stand here and enumerate all the ways that Jesus might stir up your life. I just know that when we follow Jesus, he will stir things up. To be stirred up and not to be just left alone, it's part of what it means to to follow Christ and have Jesus as our king. So I believe that if your life And if my life is too settled, too comfortable, too convenient, you and I might need to ask ourselves how closely we are following and how faithfully we're submitting to Jesus and his stirring of our lives. Jesus is a king who stirs things up. Secondly, Jesus is a king who sees. It seems that the Sermon on the Mount, as famous as it is to us and as famous as it has been, for 2,000 years, it seems, believe it or not, that it was not a scheduled event. It was not advertised ahead of time. It did not appear as a headline in the newspaper. Now, raise your hand if you know what a newspaper is. Raise your hand if you have ever read a newspaper. Notice I said newspaper. Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you subscribe now to a daily paper. (laughs) Exactly as I thought. There was no heading. 
reading up-and-coming evangelists to speak on the mountain at 3 o'clock on Sunday. No, it seems as if the Sermon on the Mount was simply a response to what Jesus saw. Look in verse 5, chapter 5, verse 1. Look at the order here. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and began to speak. The order, seeing, led to speaking. The word that Matthew uses here for seeing, it means more than just taking visual note of, oh, there's a big crowd. It means to perceive something about what you see. For instance, when I ask you to raise your hand just a minute ago, if your hand went up, I didn't just think, oh, look, there's a lot of hands in the air. No, I perceive something, especially when only two hands went up about the subscription to the paper, right? I perceive something about your age. <laughs> it means you're really old if you subscribe to a newspaper. And I perceive something to be true about the culture with which you most closely identify. Jesus perceived something about this crowd that was following him. And in response to what he perceived, he went up on the mountain, he sat down, and he began to teach. Because this, Jesus believed, was the best response to what he perceived was the great need of the crowd when he saw them. Jesus is the kind of king who sees us. Scripture tells us that when those four friends lowered their paralyzed friend through the roof of the ceiling, and when Jesus forgave his sins, that the scribes and the Pharisees were sitting there questioning in their hearts, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Scripture says that immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Jesus could see. On another occasion, Jesus was teaching in the synagogue. And a man with a withered hand came in. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched Jesus to see whether he would heal this man on the Sabbath. But Jesus, Scripture says, knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And Jesus healed him. Jesus sees, he perceives what's in us. On another occasion, an argument arose among the disciples, the twelve of them. They were arguing about which one of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him beside him. And as you know, Jesus says, For, who, for he who is least among you is the one who is great. Jesus sees. Because he is God, he sees us. His vision penetrates into the deepest places. There's nothing about you and me that Jesus doesn't see. There's nothing he doesn't perceive. There's nothing that he does not understand about you and me. In fact, one of the names for God in the Old Testament is El Roi, the God who sees. Now that might scare us more than comfort us knowing that God sees everything. It may make us want to cover up, but listen, don't be scared. Don't cover up. The beautiful and encouraging truth here is that Jesus does not ignore and Jesus does not turn away from what he sees, from what he perceives, from what he knows to be truth about each one of these people in this crowd. He knows their needs and he knows what they most need is to know about the kingdom 
of heaven. It's the only hope they have. So you and I can take comfort in the fact that we have a a king who sees us. He knows us. We don't have to hide. It wouldn't do us any good anyway. He would still see. So we might as well be open and honest before the Lord, transparent before him. I'll ask you, are you better at holding the Lord off or inviting him in into your greatest needs and your greatest hurts and your greatest fears and your greatest failures? Are you better at hiding from the Lord or at being open and honest and transparent before him? Jesus knows. Jesus sees. He responds to our greatest needs with what he believes is best and most needed. That's what he does here with this crowd. So that means you and I do not get to script the help the Lord gives us. Many people can testify that after a storm and their life has passed, that they are grateful that the Lord did not do for them what they asked of Him. He did not take away the pain in the way they wanted. He did not water the spiritual dryness in their lives in the way they asked. But He did it in His way, which is always the best way. And this is what submission means to a king who sees. It means knowing that he is not misinformed about us. It means that we don't ever have to say, oh, if only I had just explained myself a little bit better. I just didn't really present my situation or myself right. That's how we feel in our relationships. In conversations we have, we go away and we replay them in our minds and we wish we had a second chance to say things differently. Then maybe someone would understand. Not true with Jesus. It's never necessary. He sees and perceives everything about us rightly and he addresses what he sees to be our truest need in the very best way. And so you and I must and can submit our lives to a king who sees us. I can't go to the next S. I can't leave this one yet. Until I read Matthew chapter 9. Skip ahead a few chapters. Matthew chapter 9. Verses 35 through 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. Teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, the same word, when he perceived the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless. Like sheep without a shepherd. We like that part, don't we? The compassion of Jesus. And then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. Jesus' response to what he saw and perceived in this instance was not to wave a magic wand and to make all the problems go away. Notice what Jesus did here. He turned the problem over to the disciples. He told them that they should pray that people would be willing to go help other people who were hopeless and helpless. That people would have compassion on people 
who are helpless and hopeless. And so that turns it back to us, which means that in addition to being seen, which we are, we are required by the Lord to really see other people. What does it require from you and from me to see someone else? We cannot perceive in the same way Jesus did because we are not divine. But we can at least do more than just look at people. We can do more than give people a passing glance and then move on. We can take time to engage with other people. What are their needs? What are their hurts? How can the good news of the kingdom of God address those needs and those hurts? Are you willing to find out? And if you are, when you perceive something to be true about someone else, something you don't like, something you find distasteful, you cannot turn away from that person. They need you to be a laborer of compassion. When you perceive a need in another person, you cannot ignore that need. They need you to be a laborer of provision for their need. We cannot leave people on their own. To submit to King Jesus means that we seek to see and perceive and be laborers of compassion and provision in the lives of those who need the help and the hope of the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus is a king who sees. So we submit our lives to a king who stirs, a king who sees, and also a king who sits. Now, I'm going to have to ask you to relax right now. We're not going to have time for the fourth S. So take that off. This is the last one. Last one. Jesus, we'll pick up the next one next week. Jesus is a king who sits. Look in verse 1. Jesus went up on the mountain and he sat down. Now that's what Jesus regularly does when he teaches. He sits. Jesus is communicating something very important by sitting down on this mountain. Let me take us back to Deuteronomy for a moment. Raise your hand if you missed Deuteronomy. For those of you who are visiting with us this morning, you need to know that we spent four and a half years in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses is speaking, Deuteronomy chapter 9. He says, When I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. The Hebrew word used here for remain can mean that, can mean remain or dwell, but very, very often... This same word is translated as to sit. And so rabbis have always translated Deuteronomy 9.9 to mean that Moses sat on the mountain when he received the law from God. Now you and I are not first century Jews. But if we were, we would probably not miss the importance of the fact that the one who went throughout all Galilee preaching the good news, who went around teaching, who went around healing every sickness, is now sitting on the mountain. So we might likely think, this is the second Moses. The one the first Moses promised would come when he said, Deuteronomy 18, Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. 
and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command. So now, here is Jesus sitting on the mountain. The second Moses, the better Moses, the true lawgiver, the one whose words are truth and life. And his sitting communicates something else. It communicates authority, kingly authority that stands behind every word that Jesus teaches. Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you have followed me, will also sit on thrones. Kings sit in authority. Matthew 25, 31, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, And all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Kings sit in authority. Therefore, all kings must be obeyed. It's so important, really important, that we keep this picture of a sitting Jesus always in our minds. Sitting on the mountain giving the word of God with kingly authority. Because this is where we feel so vulnerable and so embattled as Americans. It's why we're so often silent. Because the only authority that's recognized in our culture now is self-authority. Our culture will no longer tolerate anyone speaking authoritatively into their lives, and they have all sorts of labels for people who attempt to do so. Bigot, hate monger, every sort of phobe that there is. Not only do they name call, they drag people into court, people who are attempting to live their lives by the truth of the Word of God. And so the more they protest... And the more they name call, and the more they sue, the quieter we get. And the more fearful we get. And the more hopeless we become of ever making a difference in this place for Jesus' sake. As if we don't have a king who is sitting on the mountain. Let me give you some more encouraging news. Truth about our sitting king, Colossians. Chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. The next time you're fearful, the next time you're hopeless, the next time you feel you should be silent, ask yourself, what kind of power must be available to Jesus in his seat beside the one and only true and living God? Why should we fear? Romans 8.31 What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he also not also give him, him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is where? At the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The Apostle Paul asks five questions 
here. And he wants us, each one of us, to answer each one of those questions because the answers to those questions orient us to think about what is true and to live without fear and to submit to Jesus, our King, especially when we feel weak, especially when we feel powerless, especially when we feel defeated. If Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father right now, praying for you, who can be against you? Effectively, answer the question. If God gave up his own son, what will he withhold from you? And please don't say a Porsche. He graciously gives us all things, and all things is life. Life in his kingdom now, life forever and ever. He will not withhold that from you. And perhaps Jesus is sitting right now praying that each of us will understand that that is what really is important in life. Who can bring any charge against you? No one. God will not listen to them. Satan will accuse you. Your own conscience will accuse you, and rightfully so sometimes. But by the grace of God, through faith, you are in Christ. He's paid for your sins. All the charges have been dismissed. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It's done. Who can condemn you? No one. You're in Jesus and he's praying for you. How about Ephesians 1? I'm getting going now. Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul wants us to know of the immeasurable greatness of his power, power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him up from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, and power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Jesus sits at the right hand of God in heavenly places, above all rule, above all authority, above all power, above all dominion, above every name, now and forever. Everything is under his feet. He has had over all things. Jesus is sitting on the mountain to encourage you and me to know his kingly authority and his kingly power. Knowing his power and authority, we can without fear, even in this culture, submit our lives to him. When he stirs our life, yours and mine, we can submit to that stirring without fear. When he looks into your life and mine and, and sees there all, all there is to see, we need not fear because we know that he will not ignore us or turn away from us. Is that good news? Instead, he'll do what's best for us and what he perceives we most need. And that is why, listen, that is why it is our great privilege and that is why it is our great comfort and that is why it is our great necessity to always keep our eyes on Jesus. Always keep our eyes on Jesus, King Jesus. Always keep our eyes on His kingdom. His kingdom that will reign forever and ever and shall never pass away. When we keep our focus there on Jesus and on His kingdom. 
When we acknowledge that all blessing and honor and glory and power belong to Christ our King, then we can submit our lives to a God who stirs, who sees, and who sits. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this word, your word. Thank you for how you inspired Matthew to tell this story. Thank you for the glimpse of the kingdom that we have seen, knowing that that will be full reality someday. Lord, we thank you for this monumental truth that lies before us. You've given us the privilege to study together. And Lord, thank you for these verses in between that establish you as king, preeminent over all things. And Lord Jesus, that is what you must be. In all things, you must have the preeminence. You must be king of our lives. Lord, we have no hope of ever living well in this world. We have no hope of ever making a difference in this place for Jesus' sake. If you are not king and if you are not preeminent in our lives. So Father, I pray that you would help us enthrone you as such. That we would keep our eyes on you, Lord, that we would always be aware of the great power that belongs to you. Power that you make available to us. Remind us, Lord, help our minds. I see sitting, you sitting on the mountain, but more importantly, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, praying for us. And Lord, from that, I pray that you would give us great courage to make our way through this world on to your kingdom, your perfect kingdom that will last forever and ever. If we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.